I'm Georgia King from Sandair, and today I'm joined by Matthew O'Connell from BI Wine. Thank you for joining me, Matthew. No, thank you for having me. So it's great to have you joining me today to talk a bit more about what it is that BI Wine do and uh, go into a bit more detail as we're enhancing our family office services at the moment. One of the areas we're looking into are passion assets and wine falls within that category. So it's great to have this partnership with you and, and to talk in a bit more detail about how you may support some of our clients. So just starting out, um, I don't know if you want to give a bit of background about what BI Wine do. I know there's different aspects to it, kind of passion versus asset class, looking at it in those different details, if you wanted to give some background to kind of you and, and the company. Yes, absolutely. So I'm one of the directors of BI Wines. As a company, we are the largest seller of fine wine and premium spirits globally. About half of our business is in London and across Europe and the rest in Hong Kong, Singapore, and we have an office in LA as well. We work predominantly with high net worth and ultra high net worth clients, but very much spanning the spectrum of collecting uh, all the way through to investing in wine or spirits as an alternative asset class. And that really covers the full spectrum, the full spectrum in between. And how do you find, I mean, obviously that is a very, very broad spectrum and you're one of the few companies that does offer that. So would you be able to give some examples of, of how you work with clients? So on the passion side, what are some examples of situations where clients will come to you? Is it just because they want to buy lots of wine for a dinner party? Is it because they want to build a collection? What sorts of examples have you got that you can share? Yes, I mean, we absolutely provide wine for some of the world's most enjoyable dinner parties, I'm sure. <laughs> but, you know, things we often work with clients to really build collections from nothing. We sometimes have people who have large wine collections and we help to assess what works well in the collection, what doesn't, what they actually enjoy drinking, what they don't, and often sell some of the collection, add to the collection and really make sure it's as special and enjoyable as possible. But we also try and make wine as, and spirits, indeed, as accessible as possible to people. So if someone comes to us and you know feels like they don't understand the space very well at all, we feel like... You know, the very best we can do is to you know, hold their hand through the journey from having very little wine all the way through to having you know, a really preeminent, preeminent collection. And often that can focus on you know, building large holdings of particularly special wines. So an example I can think of in recent years is Chateau Reyes. It's a very specific wine from Chateau Neuf de Pape, very rare and has a particularly unusual profile that wine enthusiasts go mad for. Um, so we worked with one client to ensure he had what I'm sure is the largest collection of Chateau Reyes globally, uh, which I'm pleased to say he's now working his way, working his way through slowly and enjoyably. Sounds amazing. And then on the flip side, you also deal with it as an asset class, which is really interesting, actually. So would you be able to give a kind of bit more information? How does that work exactly? Absolutely, yes. This is something that in some ways BI was set up 20 years ago to help to bridge this gap from having you know people with wine collections that they intend to drink um, all the way through to people who just want to have access to this alternative asset class. Um, it's popular as an alternative asset class. It's generally seen as very uncorrelated with other assets, which is, of course, uh, an interesting aspect. So our real expertise here is building very large portfolios, discretionarily managed, that we, we buy and sell for on an active basis. Usually diversified across regions. Generally now they have 75 to 80% wine and 20 to 25% whiskey and other spirits, uh, which is a sort of development from the last five or six years. 
And we really run those portfolios simply with the aim of producing the best possible the best possible returns. Which is really interesting, actually. I think if you compare it to, I mean, our investment team in-house, there are still those sorts of market trends that you're looking at. You mentioned whiskey, which is particularly interesting, which you focus on in your article that you've, you've done for our uh, Family Values magazine. And that trend in particular, I mean, you mentioned that it's over the last five years or so, but that seems to be continuing and, and something that you've perhaps invested in more so in recent years. Yes, exactly. I mean, whiskey's not the only example, but it's it's a very good one of a space which has had real momentum over the last decade or so. I mean, a Scotch whiskey has seen gains of around twenty percent per annum for the last decade. Uh, Japanese whiskey, which came a little later to the party, but over the last five years has been near a thirty percent, thirty percent a year. So obviously, very, very large gains in the context of in the context of other assets. So we're, we're constantly monitoring the market to make sure that we're allocated to the right regions. Portfolios have significant proportions of Bordeaux, for example, because whilst it might not see those returns quantitatively, it has the highest liquidity, excuse the pun, uh, of, of any wine region. But also, you know, we've increased our allocations to spirits in the last, in the last five years or so. Burgundy was something which people didn't invest in so much sort of 15, 20 years ago, but has become very desirable from, from an investment perspective and has really led the gains in the wine sector over the last few years. So you mentioned Japanese whiskey in particular becoming a trend in recent times. What other trends have you seen in this space, in, in the spirit space? Yes, yeah, a little like how Bordeaux led the market in the early stages in the wine space. Certainly spirits has been led by Scottish whiskey, but has very much diversified from there. So I mentioned Japanese whiskey in recent years, but it's moved outside of the whiskey space as well. Generally, when something is fine, rare, certainly difficult to replace, then it becomes interesting from an investment perspective. And cognacs are very, a very good example of that. You know, we're spending significant time currently hunting down old, fine and rare parcels of cognac. Recently, we, we purchased um, a parcel of cognac which had a couple of 1800s vintages, which we think has very high potential for value gain once it's bottled and sold to the market. And in that, I mean, 1800s, obviously, that's, some people may raise their eyebrows and say, is that still going to be fit for, for me to drink it? So what, how does that, what's that process for your clients then if they're trying to purchase something like that? Will it still have a lasting effect in terms of longevity going forward? for them to then pass it down the generations? or That's an excellent question. Whether it's for a consumption perspective, and interestingly, when we're talking about casks or in the cognac space, sort of the the glass vessels that cognac's stored in once it's really old, actually we sell spirit in this form roughly equally between, you know, often uh, high net worth families who want to have this to consume in the coming decades and also from an investment perspective where there's higher potential for value gains in this form. But a key part of the process, we're linking our market knowledge, understanding you know, what value there is to be gained from holding this over time, how much value you might gain from buying in this form and then bottling it versus just buying bottles on the market, with the actual quality of the liquid, to your point, you know, is it actually going to taste as good as it sounds? And we really use our expertise to assess these products and say is it going to last for another 20 years or so and is it going to improve potentially we also look at the desirability in that changed form as well but also the current sort of marketability for example using whiskey 
as a case study, there's been a real trend recently. Macallan is aged in sherry barrels or bourbon barrels. But in particular, we found that Asian clients are very focused on sherry-aged Macallan. So helping people understand that dynamic, but also whether uh, the cask we're looking at tastes like a good example of sherry-aged Macallan is obviously really important. And that's where you need that expertise and people who have tasted hundreds of casks and understand what what people are looking for yeah no absolutely and you mentioned previously this kind of process of of hunting down whether it's cognac or or wines or whatever it may be for clients and in order to actually do that I mean BI wine and and yourself and I'm sure other members of your team there must have to be such a, a network and access available to actually get hold of these liquids and how how exactly does that work yes it's a very important part of our business I mean something we pride ourselves on in all contexts is being able to source anything in perfect condition with sort of perfect provenance and authenticity which is obviously obviously key in the space it really just comes from being a highly reputed merchant who spent the last couple of decades building trusted supply relationships particularly across Europe but also now more globally and when you have the sort of you know when you're buying in the sort of volumes that we are across the fine and rare spectrum then people often come to you first with the most exciting products as well. So it becomes quite a virtuous circle. If you source well, you get offered things more regularly and and so on. So yeah. that's the absolutely core part of our business. That's interesting. And before we actually started the podcast, we were, we were talking briefly around there's some connection to the family office space and, and what we do working with multi-generational families is actually you guys have these relationships not just with clients but with suppliers and that can be multi-generational as well with those businesses. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's always nice, for example, Glen Farkas is a Scottish whiskey distiller we work very closely with. So it's always nice to take families, whether in a collecting or, or investment context, where they just want to actually see some of the casts in situ which, which they've invested in taking them up to Glen Farkas, for example, where I think they're currently sort of sixth generation. But you can see in practice how that family continuity, the foresight of the previous generations, has led to them having you know, hugely atmospheric warehouses full of 50, 60-year-old Glen Farkas liquid. And we often open some casts while we're there, sample some of the liquid, and you know, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty unique experience. But I think really resonates with, with family as well as, as they see their own focus on the multi, you know, multi-generational continuity in, in, that, in that business. Yeah, and supporting clients with those passions. I mean, internally within your team, there must be lots of kind of very passionate wine or, or spirit enthusiasts. Have you got any stories there? Yes, it sounds like a tough cross for our employees to bear, doesn't it? But, <laughs> um, yes, I mean, we, we tend to try to balance having the most capable and entrepreneurial people working for us, along with having a genuine passion for the product that they're that they're working with, and you know we've you know, we're always very proud of the team we've we've built up from that perspective. But it's actually very important because obviously you want to offer the best service to your clients, but at the same time, you know if you can't convey the right level of passion to them, then you've you've sort of lost before you've started. So that's how we approach it. No, which I think is fantastic and actually enables you to have that collaborative conversation and talk about specific passions if, if a client's speaking about, I don't know, Tuscan wines and, and you've got a member of the team that's particularly knowledgeable on that area, that there, there must almost be long-term relationships built and, and kind of trusted um, relationship based on the fact that you share a passion, which is a lovely place to start. 
Yes, it's it's definitely fair to say. I mean, we're we're always pleased that we have a high level of crossover between clients and friends. Yeah. Really, you know, it's it's the sort of product that, regardless of how someone's in, engaging with us on it, actually, that it's very easy to build not just long lasting relationships, but really sort of some close some close friendships. And some of the challenges in we keep on saying the term your space, but it is in in that area. You mentioned briefly authenticity. I mean, how how exactly do you go about that? Because I know that's an increasing issue which is being faced is kind of the replication of some of these wines and and what what how do you guys go about that when you're purchasing some of these rare wines for your clients it's actually a fascinating topic the the frequency with which we come across sort of what i describe as suspect products is actually extremely low which is contrary to what you would what you would expect but it, it really reflects a couple of things one is the trusted nature of our sourcing network, you know, how long established they are, how reputable they are in the trade, but also the focus with which we inspect things when they arrive at our warehouse as well, and also people's perception of, of how closely we examine things. So, for example, Domaine de la Romane Conti is quite, you know, a, a very high-end burgundy. We normally take between 12 and 15 photos of each bottle of that once it arrives at the warehouse and... Our warehouse staff are specifically trained to identify common forgeries with wines like that. But also just the key characteristics that the bottles should all have in order to see if there's just anything out of place whatsoever. And they would would immediately come to us to discuss those concerns. But because of those protections, actually, we really come across it a lot less frequently than one would think. And you mentioned the warehouse. I mean, investing in all of this fantastic wine, you must have somewhere pretty special to store all of this. Yes, unfortunately, it's, it's not as atmospheric as people, people might think. Clients are sort of Im- impressed and disappointed in equal measure when they see it. I describe it as an Amazon warehouse with a very exciting product contained within it. So we have it in perfect condition, so from a temperature, humidity perspective. But we just make sure that everything's stored perfectly there on each each pallet might be sort of a million pounds worth of wine or wine or spirit. Wow. We spoke briefly about trends and, and things that have been seen in the past. I mean, the, the magazine obviously titled Alternative Thinking. Is there anything in particular that you can see in, in the marketplace that seems to be coming to fruition that, that might be the next Japanese whiskey, for example? It's very difficult to predict, but is there something that you guys are looking at at the moment that you would say is the next kind of alternative investment? Yes, it's always in the wine space. It's always a difficult question because, in some ways, the benefit of the space is it's very clear what is in the investment grade space and what isn't, and there's not really much crossover. But spirits is a much more exciting category from that perspective. There's still a certain amount of discovery as to some of the very high quality and exciting liquids which just haven't gained full market focus yet. It's something we did. We did last year, which we which we mentioned in the article, was we worked with a American rye distillery called Whistlepig, which is in Vermont. We purchased a large number of, of barrels for them, which we've then sold to various clients as part of a sort of established program with the distillery. But even during the time that we've been associated with the distillery, they've been moving in a hugely positive direction. I assume in terms of the, the client journey from, from beginning to end when, you, when you're working with a client, so you will really scour globally for, for these products and I assume a part of that is actually physically moving them around. So there must be some complexity there which is great for clients to have your support on because that must take 
quite a substantial amount of knowledge. I don't know if you've got any examples of where that can be quite complicated. We always do all of this in the background, and it, it is really quite challenging moving all these products around logistically when they need to be moved in perfect, you know, perfect conditions, etc. Uh, I guess we've done our job properly if, you know, particularly for people who are drinking the product, if from the moment they buy to the moment it's delivered, ready for that special occasion or dinner party that, you know, they don't hear from us and we're just yeah. working quietly in the background. But yes, I mean, we're, we're always moving, obviously, large volumes of these products around. And you know, I guess we just treat it with the same care as, as if it were our own wine. Our key objective is making sure it gets to the end location in as perfect a condition as it can be. Obviously, a part of what it is that you guys do is supporting passions of your clients, and whether it's in the wine space or, or the whiskey space or whatever it may be. But you actually must have internally within your team a lot of very passionate people who themselves are involved in, in these areas. So do you have any examples of that? Yes, we always try to strike the balance between passion and expertise and ideally people having both as much as possible. A fine example is, is David Thomas who works for us so he's, he's one of our key sales guys um, but who's also a trained winemaker has worked um, a number of interesting vintages. He, he made Taylor's Port in one of the very one of the very top vintages of the 90s uh, and more recently he's been working at Chateau Le Pan in Bordeaux over the last couple of summers so particularly for clients who are trying to learn more and very enthusiastic about wine, but also where it comes from. You know, it's really amazing for them to be able to sit down with him and talk to someone who's actually you know, made the wine, but also had that experience of tasting wine all the way through its life. And you know, it really gives them a different perspective and level of trust when he says, look, I think this wine is going to be amazing in 20 years' time, and that's why it should be in your cellar. That's the sort of opinion you're going to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. And you must see with some of your clients, like you said, starting out really with next to no knowledge and just wanting to go into the into this market, perhaps for investment reasons as an alternative asset class, through to discovering a passion almost and, and then wanting to, whether it's create their own vineyard and start making wine themselves, that must be a really enjoyable journey to watch as almost educating and then collaborating, supporting all the way through. Yes, it's fascinating how quickly people catch the bug, I suppose. Actually, it's fascinating to see how, you know, where people want involvement in an investment portfolio, for example, how keen they are at developing their understanding and working with us uh, to help put that portfolio together where they want to. But also in, in the context of building a drinking cellar, you know, often they start with a very low level of knowledge. And just through that interaction with us, including obviously drinking the wine with us, they can really build up that knowledge very quickly. And, you know, often the enthusiasm takes them off to all corners of the globe, often with trips that we've helped to facilitate. And, yeah, it's very satisfying having helped them in the first steps of, of something that becomes a really, really important passion for them. Do you have, I mean, just for our listeners, is there any kind of minimum what do you tend to find is your your sweet spot in, for the on the investment side and also on the on the collecting side just for their drinking cellar? Do you have minimums for both of those just for awareness? Because some people may think that they have to be investing multi millions per year. Is that true? Or we work across the whole spectrum. We we build relatively modest drinking collections for people and we manage collections well in excess of 10 million pounders investment portfolios so it's you know it really covers the whole spectrum 
So a question for you. If you were going to be sat anywhere in the world drinking a wine or, or a spirit, what would you choose? What would your choice be with your knowledge and expertise in this area? Well, one of the main problems I have, and I think I'm very unpopular with my wife whenever we're looking at wine lists, for sure, but I'm, I'm very passionate about Burgundy myself in a, in a wine context. Lafarge is one of my favourite producers. He makes a sort of peerless Volnay, and that for me would be... It might not be the highest profile wine, but... For me, that's that's sort of desert island territory, I would say. Fantastic. That just goes to show, I think, especially in this area, it really is down to personal taste as well. And within your team, the answer to that question would be completely different across the board, I assume. It would be terribly boring if everyone liked the same thing. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you so much, Matthew, for joining me today. I think that's been really educational and really interesting. I've been Georgie King. With Matthew O'Connell of BI Wine. And this is Sandair on Air. <laughs>